Welcome to the online sermons at King Street Church. Feel free to listen or watch online at kingstreetchurch.com. We're located at 162 East King Street in the heart of Chambersburg, PA, and would love to see you in person at one of our five Sunday services at 8.15, 9.45, or 11 a.m. We certainly hope you enjoy this morning's message. I know I've mentioned uh, numerous times one of my very favorite prayers in the whole Bible. We just sang a beautiful prayer. Thank you, Nathan and team, uh, for leading that as well as uh, all that's happening over in the sanctuary. But my very fa- my, one of my very favorite prayers, I'm going to say my very favorite probably, is in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 12. Words that come out of a great king, kind of an obscure king, but a great king by the name of King Jehoshaphat who had armies pressing down on him from uh, multiple directions, three armies. And he heard about it at the last minute. He was completely caught off guard and overwhelmed. And it says that he went into the temple of the Lord and he fell down before God and he said this in a prayer. We have no power to face this vast army that is facing us. God, we don't know what to do but our eyes are on you. Isn't that a great prayer? God, I need you. I don't know what to do, Lord, but my eyes are on you. I think about that in light of, uh, of the testimonies that I want to share with you right now of uh, three individuals, Don Kreider and Zach and Tessa Stinson, that are being baptized this afternoon out at the church picnic. And uh, all of them really ultimately give the same testimony. God, I need you. I need you. I come to the end of myself. I come to literally uh, devastating circumstances. And God, I need you. Let's take a look at these testimonies of those giving their lives to Christ. Hi, my name is Dawn Kreider. And my husband and I have been attending King Street now for a year. And we're just very blessed to be here. I was baptized. I was saved at summer camp as a child, and about I was about twelve, and was baptized soon after that. Um, he had real good parents. Fortunately, I can say that weren't perfect. None of us are, but so I grew up with a good upbringing in that respect. And then as the little longer you live, you know, you do some things you're not proud of. And, and so I always had a desire to be baptized again. I believe in Christ as my Savior, and I know that He died for me. And I just want to not only publicly make that confession again. Um, I love Him with all my heart, and I just want to feel that immersion in the water, realizing that Christ loves me and I want to be obedient to this desire um, I've had for a long time and I'm excited to do it and just uh, be a witness for Him. I don't know how else to say it, it's just that simple. My name is Zachary Stinson. 
Uh, so I grew up in the church. Uh, I accepted Christ at a really young age. Uh, I believe I was like 11 or 12 or something like that. Um, and through my high school years and, and my young adult life, I kind of veered away from his path. Uh, and then I was in Afghanistan and, and got injured. And after I got injured, I, I remember laying there and asking just for his forgiveness, just because I know that I hadn't been living the, the correct way. I'd always known God, I just had decided not to follow him correctly. Um, and so since then, I've tried to make it more of a point to, to follow him uh, to, my, to the best of my abilities and, and just do what is right. I want to be baptized today because I feel like that's the next step in my faith and, and making that proclamation uh, to the world that, that this is who I am and this is what I believe and, and just making that, that symbol and statement. My name is Tessa Stinson. So growing up, I was in and out of the churches um, here and there. And whenever I got into my teen years, I started dating my now husband and going to church with his mom every Sunday and um, learning about what it was to be a Christian, to have this not just belief in a God, but this relationship with our God. So since I've met Christ, I've been in situations where people have let me down um, and I have kind of put people where God should have been and there was no room for God. And I've kind of been to an emotional um, bottom where I only had God to lean on and kind of realized that if God would not have moved those people from the spot that he should have been in, I probably would have never done it myself. Um, so kind of since some personal uh, relationship letdowns, I've had only Christ to lean on. And um, since then, it's been um, a very positive experience where I feel just refreshed and happy and um, I just feel my relationship just blooming with Christ. I want to be baptized today because I want to um, make that um, symbol for others to see. Uh, more specifically, I've got two little girls that I am a role model for who watch me daily and I want them to see me walk in the right way. Amen. Woo. Yes. It's exciting. That's God at work being uh, a God who renews us spiritually and that Church is what we're talking about this year in terms of transformation, God reshaping us, remaking us, but it all begins, as we've even heard these three say, with a cry, God, save me. Lord, I need you. And I appreciated what Tessa said there. She said, since I've met Christ, I've been in situations where people have let me down, and I've put people where God should have been. And there was no room for God. Since some personal relationship letdowns, I've had only Christ to lean on. Wow. And this speaks to how important it is ultimately to put God first in our lives, but it also speaks to uh, the dynamic of our relational connections. And we're taking this month to really think about relational connections, being relationally connected in Christ, specifically, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? We've said uh, numerous times in our staff meetings this last month that if there was ever a time to really zero in in Scripture, in terms of the path 
of a peacemaker. It's now. And God calls us, church. Here we are. We are the family of God, gathered here, King Street Church. And God calls us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to love each other well. To be peacemakers, right here, within our own church family. And I'm going to talk today about the process of peacemaking. And uh, specifically, I'm going to zero in on this question. What do I do when another believer sins against me, or I observe them sinning, how should I respond to bring about peace? Church, this is a tough question, and uh, it's a question I don't think that gets addressed very often in churches, but we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, that it says, it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. Peter is saying that if we don't live out a life of peace in our own hearts and in our own relationships as believers, we have nothing to offer a world that is divided. Let me say that again. If we don't work out our own issues within the body of Christ with respect to peacemaking, and living lives as peacemakers, we have nothing to offer a sinful, divided, hurting world. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is, uh, particularly verses 15 through 17, is, many call it the Magna Carta of, uh, of how to work through the process of making peace. And that's why... I've uh, chosen to, to preach on this today. Um, let's look together at uh, beginning at verse 15, and I'll read it for you. But follow along in your Bibles there if you would. If your brother or sister sins, sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now let's just walk through this process it's a very simple process. It's a three-step process described in Scripture. First of all, if your brother or sister sins, we're going to see in a moment that that concept of your brother or sister is a very important aspect of this entire chapter of Matthew 18. A fellow believer, if your brother or sister sins, go to them one-on-one -on -one and uh, be reconciled. Work the issue through. If they won't listen to you, if that doesn't resolve the matter, or if there's not peace that has been made, we're told here to take one or two others along with you. Now, this is an actual quote from Deuteronomy chapter 19, where we read all the way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, 
quote, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or any offense that they, that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So Jesus is saying that if there is an offense, a sin, then much like the principle in Deuteronomy, you have to bring one or two others along. He then says, if they still refuse to listen, then the language here is, tell it to the church. Now, we don't know exactly what that means uh, in terms of or what Jesus meant. In fact, these are some of the very first references in the New Testament to local congregations. You know, there are some that would say, well, tell it to the church universal. Well, you can't do that too many people. Tell it to your local church. And in fact, even within the local church, there are people who have been raised, if you will, to a place of eldership. That's how we handle things at King Street. If there are issues, that's why we have elders in place to handle these sorts of things. Tell it to the church that the church, it's kind of between the lines, but then the church, the elders, go to that person and point out their sin. And then it says that if they still won't listen, treat them as you will, uh, as you would treat a pagan or a tax collector, which in that day was kind of symbolic for anyone that was outside of, of, the, of the church family. Now, when I, I think about this passage, and I think of it kind of visually, I had this image that came to my mind as I thought about this. And, and the image is that of a person going to another, but in a way that is kind of authoritative, if you will, in, in a judgment sort of a, of a way that is pointing out their fault or their sin and, lack of a better way of putting it, kind of looking down on them, saying, you've got to straighten this out. I have a an issue with you, there's an offense, and uh, we, we call this, rightly so, church discipline. But when we look at Matthew 18, 15, 16, and 17, in the broader context of all of Matthew 18, what we see is actually something far different from that image. In fact, it's more like that, <laughs> that you make yourself, if you will, smaller, uh, humble yourself. You go in a real spirit of contrition. In fact, go back with me to verse 1 of this entire chapter. And by the way, uh, what's happening here in Matthew 18, 19, and 20 is it's kind of its own little self-contained sermon, if you will, by Jesus that is very, uh, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So you've got the big Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, 7, and in a way you've got, some commentators call this the little Sermon on the Mount, and it very much parallels what Jesus said in, back in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so what we read here in verses 1 through 5, at that time the disciples, which would have involved Matthew, who was in fact a tax collector who came to faith, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then, it's a very interesting question, but it, I appreciate their candor, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Now, when we look at the bigger storyline here and from other Gospels, we see that these disciples were kind of bickering over greatness. And they had in their mind kind of that image that I had a moment ago of a reversed image of how can I become greater, more authority, more responsibility, more uh, prestige, honor, whatever. How do I become greater? To which Jesus calls a little child to himself. He placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter, oh no, listen to this, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait, what? These disciples are asking about greatness. Jesus is saying here, forget greatness, just get in. And he says about this child, unless you become like this child, you won't even get into the kingdom. You won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So many interpret this passage as, as Jesus elevating the ministry to children. And I, I'm not saying that we don't have a responsibility to train up children and love children. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's using this child. And by the way, what is it ultimately that children are tasked with doing? Honoring their parents, right? Listening to their parents. Obeying their parents. It is a posture of humility. It's a posture of obedience. And he said, unless you're like this little child, you won't even get in to the, he to, uh, the kingdom of God. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes one such child. Jesus is saying, you, church, believer in God, must become small. This is a heart of humility. And we must also be even more humble, if you will, than others. We are constantly looking, as Jesus himself modeled, for ways to serve others. Specifically, those within the body of Christ. In Matthew 18, one of the commentaries that I read by a man named Frederick Dale Bruner said this. In Matthew 18, Jesus now turns his disciples' attention to relations within the Christian community itself. And the main enemy within is a selfish desire to be prominent. We must constantly be fighting this selfish desire to be prominent. The path of a peacemaker, number one, requires humility. It requires that we humble ourselves. But Jesus really goes on to describe what this looks like. Look at Matthew 18, 6 and 7. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble... If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, he still has this child possibly right there in front of him. But let's remember, he's not talking about causing children, literally children, to stray or to lead them astray. You know what he's talking about? 
Who are the little ones in this chapter and what Jesus is talking about? Isn't it believers in Christ? Yes. And he says, if anyone causes a little one to stumble, he's talking about, and if, if you are confused about it, Jesus is very clear, those who believe in me. You see, if we cause any fellow believer to stumble in their faith, it would be better, Jesus says, for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. How serious is Jesus about this? How serious is Jesus about how we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If you cause a fellow Christian to stumble, you've got trouble. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. If you cause a fellow, he in fact uses this metaphor again. Jesus is using a number of metaphors here. He, he uses the, the image of a large, not a small millstone, but a large one. We, this is actually one of many that are from uh, Israel back in the days of Jesus. And these large millstones ran anywhere from a ton and a half to two tons. Generally about 3,500 pounds is how much a large millstone weighs. If you've got one of these things hooked to your neck and you're thrown into the sea, brother, sister, you've got trouble. <laughs> how important is it to protect the faith of a fellow brother or sister in the Lord. How important is it? Well, if, if your hand, Jesus says, verse 8, causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life, life, eternal life, heaven, maimed or crippled, than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble or causes others to stumble, Gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of the hell. Again, Jesus is saying, forget greatness. Just get in. We have a responsibility to protect the faith of other believers. Any attempt at church discipline must always begin with self-discipline. We are called to reign in our own behavior. But what if, what if Jesus keeps going? One of our fellow or weaker Christians, someone in the body of Christ that isn't living out their faith, what if they're wandering from their faith? Don't we have the right or even responsibility to call them out? To call them out. Think again of the image of the big and the little. Don't we have the responsibility to call them out? Well, it's interesting what Jesus says next in verse 10. He says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. I'll tell you who he's talking about. He's talking about a fellow believer, someone in the church, a fellow Christian, who is not walking their faith. Someone that is struggling in their faith. And Jesus says here, see to it that you don't despise one of these little ones. And then he says this, For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. You know what he's saying here? He's saying that actually all of us have angels. Jesus is going there. That we have angels that 
are in a, in a way kind of representing us before the Father. They are our uh, defense attorneys in the heavenly realms. And Jesus is saying we're making the wrong enemies, angels, when we look down on other believers, especially those who are struggling in their faith. You see, the path of a peacemaker requires not only humility, but compassion. Our job with a fellow believer is to go get them. Look at verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, church, we're calling this, we call this backsliding or falling away from your faith. Will not he leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? This speaks to how much God loves each one of us and how we as a church family need to seek peace with each other and need to go and rescue those who are falling away. And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that didn't wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. God loves us all. Which brings us now back to Matthew 18, 15 through 17. What if you're the one who is hurt? What do you do then? Principle number three. The path of a peacemaker requires, thirdly, confrontation. And there is a time and a place where we are to confront. If your brother or sister sins, now this is uh, not just something that we disagree with. This is an obvious, blatant sin on their part. Some passages or some translations will add the two words against you. But the older manuscripts simply say, if your brother or sister sins, take one or two others along. Those who have also witnessed this behavior, but here's what I want us to see, church, that the heart in this is to rescue someone who is in fact, by their sin, causing others to stumble. That's the issue. The path of a peacemaker is to rescue others. This person is causing others to stumble, which, as we've seen, puts them in grave danger. If you're the one who is causing those around you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, to go down a path that they should not go, you are in grave danger. Cut it off, Jesus said, for it's better to get into heaven without a hand than to cause others to stumble. You see, the goal of confrontation isn't justice in the Lord. Our peacemaking efforts are a holy rescue mission. We are to have pure compassion, humility, and even confrontation when they will not listen. And if they refuse to listen, they, more than anyone else, need our love. Treat them Jesus says, as you would a pagan or a tax collector. How do we treat, our, how are we scripturally to treat pagans and tax collectors? Or to love them into the kingdom. Now, there is a hard edge to this, which ultimately the confrontation can lead to them being, you know, if you will, put out of the body of Christ. And there are very few churches that practice that because it is so difficult. But we need to see the heart of God on this. And 
confrontation as we read through the rest of Matthew 18, which I won't take the time to read it. Matthew 18, and the, the goal of this whole chapter is forgiveness. We see in Romans chapter 14, verse 19, Paul said this, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Church, here's the message today. That if we expect a lost and hurting world, a more and more divided world, if we expect them in any way to understand peace and the path of a peacemaker, church, don't we have that heartbeat for our world? I'm asking you. Don't we desire our world to understand peace? It has to begin within the body of Christ. And that's exactly what Matthew 18 is saying. That we have a responsibility to each other. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. I am my brother's keeper. We need each other. And we need to approach one another with humility, with compassion, and even at times confrontation when their lives, their eternal lives are, are literally at risk because of their behavior. Jesus, we ask you right now to work in our hearts. Jesus, we need you. We fix our eyes on you, Lord God. We ask you, Jesus, to give us the capacity by your Spirit to make peace with our brothers and sisters. Lord, we are told that judgment must begin with the house of God. And Lord, I pray even now that if we have an offense against someone else, a brother or a sister, God, give us the grace, the courage, the humility, the compassion to confront, to go and make things right, to, to follow this path of a peacemaker, Lord Jesus, to make things right with one another so that a world that is deeply, desperately looking for hope and peace can see it in the way we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this morning's message. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to contact us using our online form on our website at kingstreetchurch.com or by calling us here at 717-264-4651 during our regular business hours. Be sure to stop by and see us in person at one of our five Sunday morning services, 8.15 a.m., 2 at 9.45 a.m., as well as 2 at 11 a.m. We look forward to seeing you there.